Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Today's episode of The Serial Dynasty is sponsored by Sean T. Fitness. There's going to be a special surprise on Sean T.'s podcast this week. Me. I'm the surprise. Sean T. will dig deeper into my passion for why I do what I do for the fire department and Hay and Anand's case. And why I decided to transfer that same passion into my workouts and my health. It's going to be raw and real. He asks the tough questions because he wants you to get real results. Go to shantifitness.com slash podcast or trust and believe on iTunes. And for those of you who are trying Shanti's workouts or just doing functional training in general, Shanti has a feel shoe at Kohl's that is designed to help you have a comfortable workout while having perfect control over your movements. Available at shantifitness.com. Hello everybody and welcome back to the Serial Dynasty. In today's episode, we're going to continue to look into and examine the interrogation tactics of Detectives Ritz and McGillivary throughout the duration of this case. In order to get a better understanding of what these tactics are and how they work and the problems that may arise from using them, I reached out to get the opinion of someone who is an expert on this subject. Today's episode features a nearly hour-long interview with Jim Trainum. Jim was the retired detective featured on Serial who was tasked with evaluating the investigation. Before I begin the interview, I want to make clear to all the listeners that Jim has not kept up with this case since Serial. He looked through and evaluated the methods of the investigation when Sarah Koenig had requested him to do so last year. Since then, he's worked several other cases. He works as an instructor and a consultant and just hasn't had the time to look deeper into this case. With that being said... I think what that does is gives us an opportunity to hear someone explain to us how interrogations work from an unbiased source. Jim has not been made aware of any theories that I have, you listeners have, undisclosed. He simply looked at the paperwork of the case. So this week, rather than just listening to me talk about the investigative tactics, let's get right to the interview and let's hear what Jim Trainum has to say. I am here today with Jim Trainum, so welcome to the show, Jim. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. No problem. We want to get right into the content here. And the first thing that I want to do, there's a lot of people who know exactly who you are when I say Jim Trainum, and then a few people can't remember exactly who you are. So can And for you listeners, Jim was uh, the police officer that was on serial that was helping to evaluate the case, but he's got a lot of other background in these investigative methods as well. So Jim, could you just tell us a little bit about your background, kind of your, your resume? Sure. I was with the D.C. Police Department for 27 years. Most of that was in the homicide branch. Of course, the end of my career, I I had created a program where we were actually going back and doing a systematic review of thousands of homicide cases that had been unsolved, and we were just trying to find the ones that fell through the cracks. And based on that, I kind of helped develop some methodologies on how to do case reviews, uh, how to evaluate uh, investigations, things along that line. 
Okay, now since you've retired then, you do some speaking and teaching and uh, some consulting work too. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I wear a lot of different hats. I do a lot of consulting, or I should say reviewing of cases, not only for attorneys, but also for other law enforcement agencies. Some of these are alleged wrongful convictions. Some of these are still cold cases. I teach a lot in the methodology of cold case investigation. And also, I talk about uh, interrogation practices, how they can potentially lead to false confessions, the proper way to evaluate confession evidence, things along that line. Okay, and, th- and that's part of the reason I wanted to have you on the show today is with the case that we're working on, the Adnan Sayed Heyman Lee murder case. I told the audience last week, but just I want to uh, reiterate this again. Just as a disclaimer, as as you heard Jim just mention, he's he's very busy doing a lot of things. And Jim, you had said that you 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 haven't really kept up with this case since Serial, right? So you're not aware of everything that we've done since then. Uh, that's correct. Uh, I've worked several cases since then, and I'm getting too old to keep them all straight in my mind. So right. I would have to go back and do a lot more reviewing to be totally up to speed with this one. With that being said, you know we're going to kind of try to focus on like the methodology of the investigation, which should help us paint a little better picture of what was going on. You know, looking at a case that was closed 16 years ago. And the place I kind of want to start there is in your career, uh, and you've spoken about this on several occasions. You were involved in a false confession where you were interrogating a witness and then discovered later to find out that you had gotten a false confession out of this person. Um, can you talk to us about like the lessons that you learned from that situation? Sure. I think one of the most important things was the danger of tunnel vision and how that can impact any investigation. In fact, tunnel vision is probably the biggest factor in any wrongful conviction case because what you start to do is you start to sort through the evidence that's coming in, and you have a tendency, and this is a very human tendency, we all do it, to once we come up with our own theory, we begin to kind of pick and choose the evidence that supports it, and we have a tendency to ignore the evidence that doesn't. The second thing I learned is how easy it is using the interrogation techniques that we are taught here in the U.S., how they can unintentionally cause somebody to think that it's in their best interest to tell us what we want to hear. I mean, people ask me all the time, why would somebody confess to a crime that they did not commit? You know, they just would think that they wouldn't do it themselves, when in fact, I promise under the right circumstances, they would. My answer has always been, well, why would you confess to a crime that you did commit? Uh, what is it that we do in that interrogation room that convinces you that that's a good idea? Well, the same thing that convinced you to to confess to a crime that you did commit will also cause you to confess or give evidence. The real problem with this is that the same interrogation techniques that we use that can potentially lead to a false confession, we frequently use on witnesses, informants, and even victims if we think that they're not telling us what we think is the truth. One thing that's kind of come up in discussion revolving around this case and some of the interrogations as we've kind of reviewed the transcripts of some of the police interrogations of, of witnesses is something called the read technique. Can you, can you describe to the, to the listeners a little bit, you know, briefly what the read technique is and what your thoughts are on it? Sure. Well, the read technique was developed back in the, uh, 1940s or so. That's when it first started being developed, trying to give the police another alternative to the old third degree. 
the courts of that time were really coming down hard on law enforcement because of those interrogation tactics. And Reed is supposed to be a um, series of steps that you take in order to give the person a moral or psychological justification for confessing their crime. However, the problem with the Reed technique is that it works, <laughs> and it works very, very well. Right. Too well. Just to give you an idea how it's supposed, you know, how a typical read interrogation is supposed to occur is after I've done my initial interview and I've determined that you're guilty or that you're being deceptive, that's when I start my interrogation. And I begin it by telling you, we know that you committed the crime. The evidence is there and we don't want to hear anything but why. And then I start to give you reasons and they have whole books full of themes or reasons. Let's say that uh, you stole money from a cash register, or, or I believed you stole money from a cash register. Okay. I would give you a reason, like, you know, maybe you did it because it was out there and you were tempted, or something along that line. The problem with the themes is that you can frequently, and law enforcement does this, we frequently slip in themes that offer some sort of real or implied leniency. And so as we're emphasizing, look, we know that you did this crime, but if you confess, then people are going to go easier on you. People are being faced with this dilemma where they're, uh, they see that they're going to be convicted no matter what. And we encourage that. We encourage that belief. You're going to be convicted. There's no question behind it. Your only option is to give us what we think is the truth, and then you'll get some assistance. We can lie about evidence. We can put time constraints on people. And where the read technique itself, like I said, they do not encourage. In fact, they write in their books that they think it's improper to use real or implied threats of a inevitable consequence as, real, as well as real or implied uh, promises of leniency. It's really not taught in their class. And so law enforcement has a tendency to uh, use those tactics all the time. Pretty much put you in a box. Where you really have no choice. Where the perception is you have no choice. Okay, right. You always have a choice. You can always say, but we are a very good salesman in that we, like I said, an interrogation is basically a monologue designed to get you to admit that you committed the crime. Even though they say, all it is is an attempt to get you to tell the truth. How do, you know, the truth pointing to the interrogation room is the truth as I perceive it to be. And in order for you to get the benefit, then you have to conform your narrative to my truth. Okay. Does that make sense there? Yeah, it, may, it makes perfect sense. Um, and I'm, I'm familiar with the technique as well. And, and I know a lot of different investigators have different opinions on it. We've spoken a little before you know that I, I'm an arson investigator. Um, so I do some interviewing and interrogations and things like that as well. And personally, for me, I don't like the read technique because I always, you know, I've, I've used it in a way or a, a, a version of it. But I always come, I always come out kind of feeling like I don't know if I really got the truth there or if I just got told what I right. what I wanted to hear. What's your opinion on on the use of the read technique? I think it is a very it can be potentially a very dangerous technique. I think it is not a very effective technique for getting the truth. And the way that it is taught, it's taught just like every other interrogations school out here is taught. They, it's like 
a doctor being trained in a medical procedure without being taught the side effects and how to recognize them and how to treat them. In the retraining, just like every, just about every other interrogation school, very, very little, if anything, is mentioned about the possibility of false confessions or false witness statements and the necessity to corroborate the information that you do get. And so a lot of times what happens is when you get your information, as you know, you get what you think is a confession, well, the case is over at that point. You know, why do you, why do you need to go out and do any more work? That confession will probably lead to a conviction or at least a plea agreement. And so a lot of times the investigator skips that extremely important step of cooperation. In this case in particular, they didn't have physical evidence to corroborate anything here. So any sort of corroboration had to come from peripheral witnesses. You know, we had, of course, Jay Wilds was the the main witness, and then we had Jen Pusateri was the the witness that corroborated Jay's story. And then there was just the, all these peripheral witnesses that were kind of used used by the police to show a narrative in one way or another. Now, is is the same technique often used on witnesses? And in this case, Adnan never confessed to this crime. He never never said anything that he was guilty, even through his entire six-hour interrogation. But of course, we know Jay's testimony and Jen's testimony. But And then there was all these, you know, like Debbie and Krista and some of the other students at the school that gave testimony uh, that was used to try to fit into some sort of narrative. Is this technique commonly used on corroborating witnesses? Well, two points I would like to make. Yes, it is. I mean, that's that's the biggest problem with it. If we believe that a witness is not telling us the narrative that we want to hear, then we start the interrogation and we start the threats and we start the implied promises or the real promises or whatever like that. And it's a lot easier. I mean, if you think that you would have a hard time confessing to a crime that you didn't commit, it's a whole lot easier to give police information that, that corresponds with their theory of the case if you're not going to be the one charged. There's also a danger. When it comes to cooperation, there's really two types that are out there. One is, is the person telling me something that I know to be true or believe to be true about the crime? That's what we call holdback information. Okay. Cops are trained that they're supposed to keep certain things out of the public eye. And if the person, because that's how you judge whether or not somebody is being upfront with you, be they witnesses, uh, suspects, informants, or whatever. The problem is, especially in untaped interrogations, unvideotaped or unrecorded interrogations, there's a lot of potential for contamination that goes on in the interrogation process. And especially the way that the read technique or techniques like the read technique are done. I mean, the detective is doing all the talking, and so there's a lot of ways that information can be leaked to the suspect or to the witness. So when it comes to cooperation, you have to ask, okay, are they giving me details about the crime scene that only the real killer would know, as you'd love to say? But can you show that those details were provided by the suspect and not through contamination? It's really difficult if you don't have a videotape. The second right. type of cooperation is are they giving me things that I don't know that I can now go out and cooperate? Now, when you're doing that, the best type of cooperation is physical. Some type of physical evidence, forensic evidence, or whatever. When you're using other witnesses, then you have the danger of cross-contamination. I'm the detective. 
in my mind, I believe that this is what happened because the suspect or this person told me, I'm going to go to the witness, the same type of contamination can go on, especially if somebody confesses, uh, like Jay did. You know, right. because you go to the witness, you said, hey, this guy confessed, this is what he's saying. And so the witnesses sometimes tend to, oh, well, he confessed, so it must have happened. You get that post-confession contamination. Right. Uh, that's, that's why videotaping is so important in these cases. Even if you don't have it, you can often pick up on signs of contamination and coercion and things like that. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In this case, most of the peripheral witnesses were being interviewed, basically not in an attempt to corroborate Anand's alibi, but more so by the police to kind of to prove that he did not have an alibi. And so these witnesses, like for example, Debbie, and this I'm I'm talking about her interview a lot because that was what we covered on the on the show last week. They were asking her questions about Hay's day and you know when she saw Adnan or when she saw Hay and things like that. And there was a part of the interview where she said that she saw him in the guidance counselor's office at two forty five and she was positive about it. In situations like that, obviously the read technique, that's not the place for that. You know, Debbie doesn't need them to offer her a plea or to tell her they'll go easy on her. She didn't do anything wrong, and she knows that. But can you talk a little bit about the technique of, um, you talked, you, you called it contamination. I always refer to it as kind of suggestive interrogation with a witness. Sure. Well, this, these suggestions, these, this contamination can take many forms. It's, uh, most of it's done through things like leading or very suggestive questions. And there's been a lot of research that's been done that shows that the way that you ask a question. Well, first of all, leading questions kind of gives the person an idea, gives the person information that the cops already know, and it also gives the person an idea where the investigator wants the narrative to go. Well, but there's been research. If you phrase a question a certain way, you can actually implant false memories into somebody's right. head. And law enforcement, we think that we're really good interviewers. And study after study after study shows that we we suck. <laughs> we really right. don't do a good job. We tend to take control of the interview. We talk way too much. We don't know the right way to ask questions. We don't ask open-ended questions. We ask a lot of pointed questions. And it can really screw up the information that a person is trying to uh, give to you. Along those lines, you mentioned creating false memories, and I'm glad you said that because that's something that I've talked a lot about from my schooling and interrogating. You know, and it's a little different situation, I'm sure, when they're training, you know, arson investigators to interrogate as opposed to police officers. Same 
concept, but the difference is, you know, people like firemen. They don't like you guys. <laughs> <laughs> but That's true. I was a fireman before I became a cop, and that was the biggest thing I had to get used to. Oh, and you downgraded? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was just that I went from a job where everybody loved you to where everybody hated you. So Right, yeah. But so, you know, for us, like, I've, and, and it's a, you know, maybe a very basic elementary viewpoint on this, but, like, I've always been taught, and, and it maybe it's just having great instructors, but I've always been taught you want the truth you don't give leading questions you don't give you don't use these tactics that are so strong-armed that they're likely to get your confession because we want the truth we're very careful not to ask those leading questions and to let them talk and not be suggestive and one of the things that i've talked about on this podcast several times is the ability to plant false memories in people's minds and it, it seems like a crazy concept can you can you walk through a little bit like how someone could do that well, I'm trying to think of the uh, some of the exact experiments that they did, but and I'm probably going to let them misrepresent part of the experiment here. But they've done things like they've had people witness car accidents on video, and then they ask them questions about the car accident. And mm-hmm. if they ask them a question like, "Did you see the uh, mirror break off?" It's a simple yes/no question. And then, you know, later on, they'll go back and they'll talk to the person and ask them what they saw. And they may bring up something about a mirror breaking off or whatever when the car had no mirror on it whatsoever. If they use a word like, you know, certain words like smashed, the car smashed together, the person estimates that the car was going a lot faster than they would okay. have if they used a different word. So, yeah, it's just a phrasing, you know, how we interject certain phrases, certain certain terms, and the person will pick up on it, and it kind of influences their memory. I know that I'm probably misrepresenting the experiment, but that's the thing behind it. When people are listening to authority figures, like I said, when they think that we know something, or we think they, they think that they're trying to help us a lot of times, they will uh, sometimes be overly cooperative. Here's a better example. Eyewitness identification issues. You have an eyewitness who is kind of unsure. They go in to make the identification and they're really not positive. They, well, that kind of looks like the guy right there. And the detective goes, good job. You got the person who we thought it was. Well, next day, they're saying, I absolutely saw them in 100%. had a great view of them. You know, that sort of thing. Because what the detective said caused them to suddenly change their memory. They now had a great view versus a bad view. They're now 100% positive versus maybe I'm not too sure. Right. Have you ever seen that go the other way, where someone makes a statement where they say they're 100% positive and then through a line of questioning will get them off of that answer and move them from I'm 100% sure to I'm not so sure and why that happens? Well, you see, that's what happens in any type of interrogation. If the detective's mindset is, is that I know what the truth is, and I know that it's supposed to be this way, be the person a guilty person, be they a witness, if their narrative isn't conforming to what you think it should be, then you're going to try to get them to change it. And the way we do it, in the UK, they have a totally different interview approach that's designed to prevent that sort of thing. But here, that line of questioning, what you're doing is you're creating doubt in a person's mind, you're challenging their account, and the purpose of that is for it to now fit the account that you want it to fit. 
that's where tunnel vision comes in. They're not willing to accept her version or a version of it. They need to modify it in order to fit their version. Now, the thing about it is is that people are mistaken all the time uh-huh. about times and dates and things like that. But there's different ways to challenge it so that you don't leave that sort of doubt that did they change it because they really think that it might have been a different day or did they change it because you're really leaning on them and, and you're suggesting that it might be a different day and you want them to change because it doesn't fit what you think they, they should be saying. And the, psychologically for the person being interviewed, even if they're sure about something, can you describe why they would have that tendency to go ahead and say the thing that they clearly know the detective wants them to say? Like, what what would cause them to do that when they know they were right, especially a young person, a teenager being interviewed? Because a lot of people you know, will think, well, if I know it was right, I would never change my answer. Why would anybody, any young person in a situation like that, why would they change their answer? Well, first off, young people are much more susceptible to suggestions than older people are, especially if you have a have an authority figure over top of you who strongly is suggesting that something might be different or that your memory might be false, you're much more, you know, they're much more likely to conform. That's why most police agencies, especially with extremely young children, they make sure that they videotape all the interviews and they have specialists who come in and do the interviews just so that that sort of issue is avoided. Right there. Right. And would you, from, from my experience and my education on this, I was always taught that one thing you have to be careful about is kind of like hinting, like not coming out and being very clear that this is what I want the narrative to be, but saying things suggestively to let the interviewer or the interviewee know what it is that you're looking for. Because I was always taught that in interrogation, even if it's just a peripheral witness, it's a combative place. You know, they're, they're uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. It's an, it's intense. They're, they're nervous and that people who are being interviewed have a tendency to want to please the person who's interviewing them to kind of like give you, I'm going to say what I think you want me to say because I want this to stop. Like I, I, I would want this to be over. Would you agree with that? Well, that's one of the other dynamics that, uh, occurs a lot, especially when you're interrogating juveniles. The short term benefits of them just saying, yeah, whatever you say is the truth, I'm going to go with that, outweigh the long-term consequences, especially if you're confessing to a crime. Right. I think juveniles are, are much more, you know, in my experience and the experience of a lot of the researchers out there, juveniles are much more uh, you know, susceptible to coming to that sort of, let's just get this over with, whatever you say, let's get it behind us. We talked a little bit on the phone last week about about some verification bias. And one thing I wanted to ask you is, do you think it has an effect on a witness knowing that the person that they're speaking about has already been arrested? Well, yeah. I don't know about verification bias in that sense right there. But uh, a lot of times people will think that, okay, the police have arrested him, so he must have done it. And (laughs) it's funny because then they start looking back and they start taking things that were totally innocent back before the arrest, and they suddenly have this sinister appearance to them. And the memories kind of change along that line as well. So, like I said, I don't think that's real verification bias. I just think that that's more of a, what's the best way to put it? 
I couldn't think of a word either. That's why I went with verification bias. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, verification bias is, well, I mean, my definition of it is, you know, you already have your theory. You've come up with this idea. And so I'm only going to look for evidence to support that theory. I'm not going to look for anything. Sure. From an investigator's point of view. Absolutely. Right. I guess I was kind of putting that in this perspective because I was thinking of this person was arrested and I've made up in my mind, well, they must be guilty because they were arrested. And that sort of starts, just like you said, where it starts to kind of shift your thinking about everything about that person because you've got made up in your mind they're guilty because the police arrested them. Well, as an, yes, and as an example, um, and I can't remember all the names and everything, but wasn't there a guidance counselor or a social worker or something like that who came forward and it all of a sudden started trying to demonize Ednon's actions yes. after the murder? Yes. And, I mean, that's like in hindsight. Probably at the time, she had a totally different outlook on what was going on, but once he's arrested, she's thinking that, oh, oh now, now she sees all this evil intent. And that's something that I've always kind of been cautious in dealing with that sort of memory shift right there. Right, and then... Also, I mean, it's like, you know, people look back, oh, yeah, I know they're guilty because they weren't crying enough, they were crying too much, or yeah. whatever like that. People, A lot of times people project, if you don't do what I think I would do in this situation, then you're acting abnormally. Sure, and probably even, so, even though they were not acting the way you would at the time, when they look back on it after knowing that you were arrested, then... It looks even, you know, in their mind, it changes to being even worse. Sure. And especially, you know, in this case, one thing that did happen was right after Adnan was arrested, police officers came to the school and they spent a couple of days there telling the students under the pretense of we're trying to reassure everyone that we got the right guy. But they were telling them all that we have the right guy. We know we do. We have tons of evidence. They told them that they had DNA evidence. They had fingerprint evidence. They knew with 100 percent certainty that they had the right guy. They had spent a couple of days at the school telling all the students these things a month before they interviewed them. And would you think that would have an effect on some of their testimony? If that happened, probably so. I mean, it would probably have biased them and also their memories during that time as well. All right, I need to take a quick break right here to hear a word about our sponsor, and then we'll get right back to the interview. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Now, I wanted to jump back. I was, I was going this route back then that we, our discussion kind of went a different direction, but kind of jumping back to when we were talking about the read technique, I want to talk a little bit about Jay Wilds. What we've, and again, I know this is something that you haven't verified, so I, I guess I'll, you know, I'll frame this as kind of a hypothetical. If someone in Jay's position, because the big thing, you know, there, there's some people that speculate Jay knew nothing about this crime and he was coerced into giving this testimony against Adnan. Other people think he's telling the truth, and then there's people in the middle that think maybe he was involved somehow. What we know in our hypothetical situation we're talking about is the prosecutor had threatened Jay to send his case 
down to Baltimore County and charge him with murder one if he didn't accept his plea agreement for his testimony. And that's something that was just recently discovered. The undisclosed team actually had Ann Van Roya speaking with them, who was his attorney, and confirmed that, that her paperwork said it was for murder one, and then she signed the plea agreement for him. There's obviously some of this read technique going on here in order to get the testimony they want. They were actually threatening to charge him with murder, and the reason they were going to send it to Baltimore County was because in Baltimore County, he would be facing the death penalty. Apparently, the judges in the county, almost 100% of the time for a murder one case, will go with the death penalty as opposed to Baltimore City, where they almost never do. If that was the case, and like I said, I know that you don't know that to be true, but if what I'm telling you was the case in a scenario like this, do you think it could be possible that that witness could give a false confession in order to avoid that? Well, first off, in fairness to Reed, a lot of what goes on in plea negotiations would never be condoned in the interrogation role. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, I guess uh, this know, is prosec- a prosecutor. You know, prosecutors, uh, absolutely. I mean, they're not bound because they can actually tell you, this is what I'm going to do to you. Right. Uh, and so that's why we, why we do have so many false guilty pleas as well. Now, at that stage, though, I mean, that was pretty far along in the investigation that that happened. Yes, I mean, I have definitely seen cases, especially with informants, where the prosecutor was so heavy-handed that the person is going to say whatever the prosecutor wants them to say because it's now a business transaction. Right. I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to be facing the death penalty. In order for me to escape that, I have to provide a service, and that service is this. And I have to testify as to what they determine is the truth. If my story doesn't fit what they think is true, then I'm not going to get the deal. So maybe maybe he did do it. Maybe what he's going to testify to is the truth and all of that. But it's that tunnel vision thing. It's that lack of cooperation thing. It's that lack of the investigative mindset of being critical and of critical thinking. But, you know, yes, definitely that sort of heavy-handed thing has been numerous times in the past led to false testimony by cooperators, informants, witnesses, Okay, 100%. I want to back up all the way back to Jay's first interview that we know of on the record, you know, the night that he was picked up and he was interviewed, and that was where there was two or three hours of pre-interview that was undocumented. I, I think your quote from Sarah, at least the way that Sarah Koenig had quoted you, was that's where the mischief can happen. Yes. So there's all this pre-interview time, and then they start interviewing him, and he starts to give this narrative about how Anand had killed Hay and he had helped. And then there was a, there was a segment, I don't know if you remember it or not, in that interview where the detectives get him to admit that he helped plan the murder the night before. And it's a, and it's a weird line of questioning where it's, you know, but you helped him and he's, you know, he kind of says, I, well, no, is well, well, they called, he called you the night before, right? And, you know, you hear some confusion from Jay and he's like, the night before he called you and, and told you this was the plan and you were going to assist him by taking the car or whatever. And he says, yes, he did. So at that point, and in my opinion, unknowingly, Jay had just confessed to accessory before the fact, which is, which is why they were going to send him up with a, with a murder charge if he didn't do the plea deal. How do you think? That's part of that interrogation. Once once he had told them that he had helped plan the crime the night before, which wasn't part of his original narrative, do you think from that point forward that that would affect how he had testified going forward from there? The part that you're talking about, that was the what I refer to as the recap video. It's 
this is a final version of his confession, right? Because nothing else was recorded right. up to that point. And so, as you know yourself, you're not only trying to get the person to admit to the crime, but you're also trying to get the person to include various elements in order so that you can make the prosecution of the crime easier. And that's how you kind of get them to admit to consent, things along that line. Once he's locked into that version of it, even if he retracts it later on, they're going to try to hold him to the version where he's the most culpable. Right. So that's how they have, that's, that's how they have the most leverage over him. Exactly. And Jay had testified at trial when Gutierrez was cross-examining him. He testified that the police had told him on a number of occasions that if he didn't give up at non, that they were going to charge him with the murder as well. Uh, and I think that's... And that's a very common technique that's very, very inappropriate. It's caused many, many problems in the past. So, As far as that part goes... In your opinion, do you think that it's a possibility that Jay's entire narrative could have been coerced? Well, there's a difference between it being coerced and it being reliable. It could very well have been, I mean, you can put a gun up to somebody's head and still get a reliable statement from them. Right. Um, But the likelihood of them saying something to get that gun away from their head that might not be true is, is pretty damn high. So even if he was coerced, you want to look at, is the information that he's given, is that reliable information? Can it be corroborated by one of those two methods or both of them that I talked about earlier? So that's that's the key right there. Uh, I, In all likelihood, based on uh, what I remember, I'm sure that these tactics were used. I'm sure that they generated a situation where the potential for a unreliable confession or statement uh, existed, but just because they, they're there doesn't make the end result uh, a bad statement. You had to look at the evidence that was provided in that statement and, uh, and at that point determine whether or not it can be corroborated, whether or not it, it was provided by the detective rather than the suspect, and you go from there. It's funny because there's a lot of different types of false statements. And uh-huh. one, one type of false statement is the person was not there, had nothing to do with it, and everything that they said is totally false. There's other types of false statements that some of the stuff is true and can be corroborated and some of the stuff isn't. And it's just total BS. Sometimes that happens because the person is trying to protect somebody, trying to minimize their own involvement, so they're going to leave some details out. They really don't want to tell the cops that, yeah, I was out there buying drugs. Uh, you know, so they kind of right. leave out uh, small things like that. Other times, the details are screwed up because of the interrogators. Let's say that I'm the interrogator, and I'm asking you about a crime that you did commit. And I know that you did A, but I also think that you did B. Well, you didn't do B, okay? And right. you're telling me that you, you said, yeah, I did A, but I didn't do B. Well, I know you did B in my own mind because of that tunnel vision thing. In order for you to escape that inevitable consequence and to get that benefit, you got to tell me you did B. Okay, I did B. Right. It, it, we screw up cases like that all the time, <laughs> you know, because we 
are just too confident in what we think we know. The next question I wanted to ask, and a lot and a lot of people have asked me to ask you this, is during Serial you commented that, in your opinion, this investigation was, I, I think you had said, was better than most or above average or something like Was that correct? Yeah. Okay. With the little bit you've kind of discovered since then, I know that that's not much. Do you still have that same opinion? Well, when I was talking about that, unfortunately, the interrogation issues that we were talking about, the interview issues and all that sort of thing, that's way too common across the board when it comes to investigations. In this case, what I was referring to is, especially at first, the detectives were being extremely methodical. They um, were going where the evidence was taking them. And I think one of the examples that I use, and they weren't being overly aggressive. Uh, one of the examples that I used was with Jen. The detectives at that point think that Adnan has something to do with this. They're looking at him as a suspect. Her phone has popped up in his his uh, cell phone log uh, during the time that they're really looking at. And so they go talk to her, and she doesn't want to talk to them. And a lot of departments I know would have snatched her up, dragged her down, and they would have been going at it for a long time. They backed mm -hmm. off. And so when she came back to them, and like I said, they began to – they followed – the evidence where it it took them. They weren't pushing it. Um, and overall, like I said, I looked at a lot of different investigations, and this wasn't all that bad. How do you feel about the... Well, I guess you kind of answered that already as far as how you feel about the interrogation tactics. It sounds like they're problematic, but they're more common than we'd like to think. They're, in my opinion, they're problematic. However, it's a standard approach that is used by law enforcement uh, with witnesses, with suspects. And it's, like I said, it's one of the things you have to look for is what did they do with the information after they got it. One of the things that I did look at is were there other things that potentially could have been done that could have strengthened their case. I think that if they had done those things, then we probably wouldn't be having this conversation today because I think that it would probably have helped to erase doubts one way or the other. Either Ednog would not have been convicted or we wouldn't have any doubt about his his uh, guilt uh, today. What are some of these examples that you're you're referring to? Just off the top of all, one thing is, of course, videotape the, the interrogations of Jay from start to finish. What you have to be careful of is shifting from a evidence-based investigation to a suspect-based investigation too soon. When you're in an evidence-based investigation, you're collecting information, you're gathering data. You don't really have a suspect yet, so you're just getting everything from every place that you can. As soon as you get a suspect, you begin to focus on gathering information to prosecute that suspect. And that's, that's a necessity. You have to do that at some point. But oftentimes, you jump on it too soon, and um, maybe sometimes we don't think about, okay, what else can we do before we arrest our suspect that could potentially strengthen our case? We get in too much of a hurry. Like, just as an example, and I don't know all the circumstances surrounding uh, that night, but they're interviewing Jay. Jay's given up this information about Adnan. I mean, he's cooperating with them. Potentially one of the things that they could have done 
was to have Jay make a pretext phone call to Edmont and record it. Hey, right. the cops have been by. They're, you know, they just talked to me or they're coming by the house. Uh, they've come by the house. I haven't talked to them yet. What should I say? Or, or you know, just get him talking on the phone. Right. Uh, something along that line. Yeah, but, that's something that I, I thought about that too, that it's a, it's a common technique in situations like this. What better evidence could you have than to have him have a conversation with his accomplice and record it? I was always wondering why yes. they didn't do that either. Well, one reason, like I say, I always try to look for alternative explanations for why things were done and not done. Maybe, possibly, they thought that when they picked up Jay, word might get back to Adnan, and he might have split. Or he might have destroyed evidence or whatever like that. So they were in a rush. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I would have done more like uh, searching Jay's house, trying to gather evidence along that line, uh, which wasn't done. But in every, but in fairness, every single case, I don't care how good the investigator, there's always things that could have been done, should have been done, that weren't done. However, anybody can always come up with other stuff that could have been done that would have made it stronger or weaker, <laughs> you know? Right. And that's, that's, a, and I, th- I think you said it best earlier when you said if they had done some of these things, it would have eliminated doubt one direction or the other. You know, like for me, I thought yeah. of, you know, things like that, that phone call or testing all the fingerprints and running them through the, the system and testing the DNA that was found on the scene or interviewing and documenting interviews with all of the witnesses that would have corroborated Jay's testimony. You know, all the, all the people that he said he saw that day, you know, we don't have any okay. interviews from any of those people. There could be a innocent explanation to that, or there can be a guilty explanation to why they would or wouldn't do those things. But, you know, some of it is that, especially in a, uh, place like Baltimore, you got your next case right behind you, or you got other cases that you still need to work on. And so you can't investigate everything to the ninth degree. You have to have a cutoff point somewhere. And um, that could be a explanation why some things weren't done in this case, or why things were done differently. That's just one possibility. Sure. Um, you can investigate something to death. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, and I know that too. And it's it's in this case, it seems like their overall case by the time they went to trial was so weak. It's just, I can't figure out why they drew the line where they drew it. You know, it's like they they had without having any physical evidence and having this one witness with all these different versions of his story. It's it, it would seem to me like that line they would draw to say, okay, enough, this is enough, would have been a few, a few steps further than where they decided to draw that line. Right. Uh, before I let you go today, Jim, I wanted to ask you. Last week I had emailed you parts of an interview with Debbie. And, and the reason I wanted you to look at it as someone that's an expert in these things, the sections of the interview where the police had asked Debbie about places where Nan and Hay had had sex, she gave them a parking lot and a park, the things that fit their narrative. And their follow-up question was whether or not she had, whether or not Hay had told her that they'd had sex in a hotel. And she says no. And they ask if Adnan had told them about a hotel. He said no. And then a couple pages later, Ritz interjects and asks the same questions again and asks to give out a hotel again. Um, it struck me as odd because a hotel has never been a part of their narrative. Jay's never said anything about a hotel. Uh, at the point she was being interviewed, Adnan was already arrested. He was, he was getting ready to go to the grand jury. 
everything in the narrative had nothing to do with the hotel. And then it, it seemed to me that they were going out of their way to try to get some information out of Debbie about a hotel. And, and so w- w- as someone with your expertise, what did you make of that exchange? I mean, that could just be them exploring a rumor that they heard or possibly this detective might have um, in the back of his mind thought, well, they, they have to have had sex at other places rather than just, in this parking lots or whatever like that. Uh, it, it could be something as innocent as that. Or like I said, just somebody, they heard a rumor, had a suspicion, had a gut feeling there was something else there, and they just went to explore it. Okay, so maybe they'd heard something from somebody about a hotel or something, and they were just they were trying to maybe corroborate that rumor or whatever. I'm purely speculating, but yes, I mean, that could be an explanation as to you know, why they were asking that question. Okay. And then the last thing I wanted to ask you about, and it doesn't really have much to do with any of this, it's just why I have a train respected expert on the phone. Um, there's been some, dis- <laughs> <laughs> at least in my mind, I don't know what everybody else thinks about you. <laughs> I know. A lot of other people have another word for me, I'm sure. Right. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion going on lately about the final resting place of, of Hayes' body and the disinterment process. And so without getting into all that with you, I just wanted to ask you if you don't mind. Um, first of all, have you have you ever been at a disinterment where you you know a body was found buried and then it had to be dug up? Yes. Okay. In those situations, the process of excavating and disinterring the body. Can you describe the process as far as the digging? With you know, as far as you because know, I've always been because I've dealt with it with with you know bodies in rubble of a fire, not so much in dirt. But our process is always to move the rubble or the dirt away from the body and not move the body away from the dirt because you're trying to maintain the resting position. Is is that accurate to you or can you describe kind of how that process goes? Well, yeah. I mean, it's basically like a archaeological dig. And in fact, frequently we would bring in archaeologists to actually do the work for us. So when I worked, what I'm thinking about in particular was buried a bit uh, deeper than this. Uh, but if, yes, you do work basically around the body, exposing the body, taking the dirt down around the body so that it's kind of elevated. You want everything to be uh, removed, photographed in place, and all that. It's very meticulous, takes a lot of time. And uh, that way, that's that's the only way that you can really capture the scene and capture all the, the evidence that is there. Okay, I think I've, I've I started with you past your bedtime, so we've got to be way past your bedtime now. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Jim. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to interview with us today. Um, it's, I'm sure it's been really enlightening for all the listeners and it was, it was great to hear from me. And it's just, I could sit and talk and after speaking with you a little bit over the last few weeks, I could sit and talk and tell war stories with you all day, all night long. But <laughs> my wife's going to want me to go to bed at some point too. And you got that deer to go hunting tomorrow, right? Right. Yeah. First thing in the morning. So <laughs> I'll, I'll let you go, Jim. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time to interview today. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Take care. Yep. Take care, Jim. What a great interview. I hope all of you found Jim as informative as I did. It's really interesting to hear someone's perspective on interrogation techniques in general without applying them to known speculation about this case. And I realize that a lot of you listening are advocates and supporters of Freeing Anon and have dug so deeply into the weeds of this case, they're already aware of all of the inconsistencies that surround it. And I'm sure it's frustrating to you that Jim's opinion of the investigation is that it was a decent investigation and they followed the evidence. 
But what you have to remember is Jim was tasked with evaluating the documents of the case and following the train of logic that the detectives went through. It wasn't his job to go through and do what we've done, and especially what the undisclosed team has done, which has spent months and months and months investigating every piece of that documentation to find out whether it was accurate or not. If you look at this investigation, according to the police official record, it does appear that they followed the evidence. Anonymous tip leads to Adnan, which leads to pulling his cell phone records, which leads to Jen, who leads to Jay, who gives them Adnan. That is most definitely the most logical way to track that investigation, if all of those things were true. But thanks to the brilliant work of Rabia Chaudhry, Susan Simpson, and Colin Miller, we know that there's a lot more to this story. The value of Jim's interview was to give us a better understanding of what goes on in the interrogation room. And I really, really enjoyed hearing from Jim. I could have talked to him all day long. He's an incredibly knowledgeable person, and the questions that we have about these interrogations are right in his wheelhouse. So I want to thank Jim Trainer one more time for taking the time out of his very busy schedule to spend an hour with us today and share some of his expertise on this subject with us. Moving forward, after the last few episodes, everybody's emailing and wanting to know more about Don. Well, there's a piece of that puzzle that's been missing for 16 years. And over the last several weeks, there's been a combined team effort happening to try to get to the bottom of it. Between a few listeners, Susan, Rabia, and myself, this week we were able to confirm some suspicions and fill in a major gap in this investigation. Next week on The Serial Dynasty. Thank you to Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music for creating all the music for our show. Thank you to Jill of Pod Transcriptions for generating all of our transcripts, which can be found at SerialDynasty.com under the Transcripts tab. Thank you to Tate Krupa, who's designed all of our logos and is currently working on the new Truth and Justice podcast logo. As always, thanks to Sean T. at Sean T. Fitness for funding the program. And another huge thank you to all of you listeners for all of your support. Your support and dedication to this movement is the driving force to the pursuit of truth and justice. Your ideas, thoughts, and theories are what has helped us to fill in the gaps and complete the picture of what happened on January 13, 1999. I appreciate all of the emails and tweets and Facebook messages. Every one of them makes a difference. And I want to thank all of you who have contributed to the GoFundMe Fund to help launch us into the next chapter of this movement, the Truth and Justice Podcast. The fund has now climbed to over $10,000. We're over two-thirds of the way there. And thanks to all of your support, we will have the resources to continue this movement indefinitely long after this case and with many cases to come. If you'd like to contribute and help us reach this final leg of our goal, go to GoFundMe.com slash TruthAndJustice or go to SerialDynasty.com and click the GoFundMe link. And since we now have all the wheels in motion to be confident that we can continue this march, next week will be the last week of the Serial Dynasty podcast. On October 18th, the podcast name will officially be changed to Truth and Justice. Now, for those of you that are worried, that does not mean that it's brought an end to this investigation. We are working on new cases, but I am also fervently working on reaching our goal in solving this case. So on the 18th, the name will change, but the content will continue on. But just don't be surprised when the name and the logo change in your subscription to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Please continue to send all of your thoughts and theories into theories at SerialDynasty.com. Reach out to me on Twitter, at SerialDynasty. 
Check out the Serial Dynasty Facebook page, and please keep your eyes and ears open and keep in touch. For now, I'm signing off, and until next week, this has been the Serial Dynasty. Serial Dynasty.